0: Our sermon today is taken from John chapter 20, verse 19 to 23. This is the word of God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his his hands and his sight. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Thus says the Lord. Amen. Let's go before the Lord in prayer once again before we start the sermon. Father, what a blessed hope that we have here in the resurrection. We thank you, Lord God, that you pursue us. Fearful disciples though we are, fearful of death, fearful of sin, fearful of others who I persecute us, Lord God, fearful of life. Lord, we would not have persevered we were it not for your gracious pursuit, your relentless pursuit of us by grace. So Father, help us focus now in this time Help us see the sense of the text, help us see what it is that you're trying to say to us here in this passage, help us then leave from this place with a greater understanding and also a greater love of Jesus Christ. We pray these things by the Holy Spirit, in Jesus' precious name, amen. Friends, we're welcome again, and uh, we're continuing our series today in our Gospel of John, and we're continuing in chapter 20, which is the resurrection narrative, the resurrection account, that is, Christ had been resurrected. He was crucified. Three days later, he was resurrected. And then now, in the resurrection narratives, we're seeing that he's appearing to particular disciples, particular people, after his resurrection. Um, So he he appeared to Mary last week, as we saw from Tazar's sermon. He's going to appear this week to the ten disciples, without Thomas and without Judas, of course. And then next week, we're going to see him appearing to Thomas. And then the week after, next week, we're going to see him appearing to Peter. And so here, in our passage today... We're seeing Jesus' first encounter with the rest of the disciples right after his resurrection. This is the same day as his resurrection. So notice at the beginning of verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the day of the resurrection, the same day he met Mary, the the dawn of a new creation when Jesus was resurrected, he appeared to the disciples. And his message, interestingly enough, is a message of peace. We're going to explore that today. All right, so Jesus was resurrected the dawning of a new creation, and the message of peace. So three points from today's sermon. First, how peace enters into our lives. Second, the basis of our peace. And third, the urgency of our peace. So first, how peace enters into our lives. Second, the basis of that peace. And third, the urgency of our peace. All right? Okay, so first, how peace enters into our lives. So notice here something peculiar about the first verse. Look at this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, again, the day of the resurrection, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. We're at a few features of this particular passage that tells us how peace actually enters into our lives. There's lots of things here that you might want to ask. First, how in the world did Jesus show up? Uh, did he float through the walls? Did he just kind of enter like a specter? Did he teleport into there like the movie Jumper or something? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. All we do know is that somehow when the doors were locked, when the disciples were, were fearful of the Jews and they were in this closed place, Jesus shows up. So somehow his resurrection body, his resurrected body, has some kind of hyper physical powers. That these these powers that somehow could transcend space and even time so we're not exactly sure because the text doesn't tell us so if the text doesn't tell us we're not supposed to linger there we're not supposed to focus on that but instead what the text does tell us is that jesus shows up jesus shows up when the disciples were fearful jesus shows up in a way that transcends space in a way that isn't limited by space jesus simply shows up when the disciples were were locked in locked doors right so so what do we, what do we learn about peace here well, first, peace enters into our lives when it's uninvited. Peace enters into our lives when it's uninvited. Notice the disciples were fearful, all right? Here's the picture of the disciples at this point. They fell asleep right when Jesus was getting captured. They should have believed when Jesus, when they saw the empty tomb, when they heard from Mary that Jesus had, had, had seen her. They saw the empty tomb. They saw the wrapped folding cloths. But at the same time, they were still fearful. They were still not yet believing. They were still faithless in Christ. So the picture that we get of the disciples is unbelieving, still fearful, not looking for Christ. You would have imagined, you would have thought that if Christ was really resurrected and they really believed in Mary, they saw for themselves an empty tomb, you would think they would be ecstatic. They would have a hint of faith. They would have looked around for Christ. They would, have, they would have had some hope. They would have suddenly had a muster of encouragement that they would actually go out and, and proclaim the resurrection. But that's not the picture that we get. The picture we get of the disciples, it's almost like they, were, they haven't been changed yet. Even after they saw the empty tomb, the disciples embarrassingly almost locked the doors. In fact, the Greek there is, is, is more strong. The, the, the doors were chained up because of fear of the Jews. They were afraid of death. They were still afraid of anything that could have came, right? Which kind of makes sense because if they thought if the leader was killed, how vulnerable are they? And sure, you might have wanted to excuse them before the res- resurrection, but still, even after the resurrection, the disciples still didn't get it. They were still fearful. They weren't looking for Jesus. And Jesus comes in intruding into their lives uninvited. Uninvited. That's the picture of humanity. That's the picture of who we are. In other words, Jesus comes into our lives not as we are seeking him, as if we are the ones looking for him, and he's evasive, right? When Adam and Eve sinned, it wasn't them who was looking for God. God came looking for them. And in the same way, when Jesus resurrected, it wasn't the disciples who were looking for him in earnestness, and courage, and hope, in great expectation and faith. What you see instead is the disciples who are fearful and it was Jesus who ended up pursuing them. See, there's a bad analogy that goes around about how, you know, we come to have faith in God. And that bad analogy is that somehow we are earnest, good, faithful people and God is somehow elusive to us. God is somehow elusive to us. Or that God is knocking at the heart of every door And, you know, we're curious and we're wanting to find out what it is that God is trying to say to us. That's not the picture we see over and over again. What we see, even after the resurrection, is that Jesus comes to those who did not invite him. Jesus comes to those who are faithless. Jesus comes to those who are fearful. And that is the means of our perseverance. Our perseverance, friends, is not from us trying hard enough and Jesus cooperating with our wills, Jesus cooperating with us as we meet him halfway, our perseverance, as we know from experience, is that Jesus enters into our lives time and time again when we are thinking of abandoning him, when we're thinking that this is all, this, that, that's it, when we're thinking that there is no more hope for us, when we're so tempted to leave him that the resurrection, though it was preached to us, though we read about it, makes no sense into our hearts anymore. It doesn't affect us. Jesus comes into our lives. That's how we persevere. Not because we hang on to God, but even after the resurrection because God hangs on to us. So Jesus comes and brings peace when it is uninvited to fearful disciples. Secondly, Jesus comes, uh, uh, this is how peace enters our lives. Jesus comes and brings peace to the undeserving. To the undeserving. Not only do we not look for it, not only are we faithless and dependent on him to look for us, but rather we are also un- an undeserving people who deserve something other than peace, who deserve condemnation. Who did Jesus show up here sp- to here specifically? Who did he bring this message of peace to? Ten disciples who included who? John, Peter fell asleep. Uh, the disciples scattered Right after Jesus was uh, crucified, in cowardice. Not only that, Peter, who just a few scenes before had denied Christ three times. In other words, what you have here is not just disciples filled with fear that Jesus could have came and showed up and said to them, "Oh, you faithless people! How many times have I told you that I would resurrect?" How many times have I told you that this is the purpose of my ministry, to suffer and to die and to come back alive for your sakes? Jesus told them so many times that he was going to raise himself up again from the dead that even the enemies knew about this, and they placed guards over the tombs. And Jesus said this over and over again, especially to the disciples, and yet they remained faithless and fearful. And not only that, it's now the disciples filled with people who have denied Christ, People who have abandoned him, people who fell asleep on him, people who were faithless. You would have expected that if Jesus were entering into this locked room, it wouldn't have been a message of peace. He wouldn't have said, the first thing he said to them was, Peace be with you, but you would have expected something utterly different. He would have been completely justified in saying, You shall be condemned. Where were you when I was crucified? Peter, I saw you when you denied me. Where were you when they were looking for me? Where were you when I was crucified? How many times have I had to tell you that I would be resurrected and still would you be so faithless? Why are you still afraid of the Jews when I told you that the purpose of my ministry was suffering? But that's not what Jesus came and did, and there's nothing Friends, nothing more sweet, nothing more sweet to a seared conscience than to hear God coming to you when you least expected, when you haven't invited him, when you were fearful and afraid and when your conscience was condemning you, when you were just trying to hide away in the dark and for God to show up, not, friends, with a message of condemnation, but with a message of peace. And notice again the passivity of the disciples in attaining their peace. They weren't looking for it. They didn't deserve it. Jesus simply shows up in the middle of that fear. In the middle of their fear of death, in the middle of their guilt, Jesus simply shows up. And and the third way peace enters into our lives is that it it transcends physical boundaries. Suddenly Jesus can come in, intruding into our lives, coming into our lives, bringing in a message of peace in a way that's not only undeserved, in a way that isn't just uninvited, but follows you no matter where you go even beyond locked doors that somehow jesus's physical body does not any longer contain him jesus's physical body doesn't any longer mean that you cannot be present wherever he is anymore in other words there's something about the resurrection that says that jesus can bring peace into your lives no matter where you go so let's go to the second point the basis of our peace the basis of our peace. Notice in verse 20, Jesus says, peace be with you. And it says there, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus shows up, he brings in a message of peace and not condemnation. And not only that, in verse 20, he shows us why it is that they should have peace with him why it is that they should enjoy peace with him, and why it is that they should be glad, and indeed, their proper response, they they were glad, they rejoiced when they saw this, what did he show them? He showed them his hands and his side. The marks of the resurrection, the the scars of the crucifixion, in other words, that he bore on his body, all of the scars that marred him during the crucifixion, and yet, he overcame them, yet he overcame them, and he, he resurrected and notice what, what, what isn't there for the basis of our peace. What did Jesus not do? Jesus didn't show up bringing up his teachings. He didn't show up and, tell him, and told them, You know, he didn't show up and say, remember the Sermon on the Mount. This is how you're supposed to pray. Remember my commandments toward you. Love each other. In other words, the basis of our peace isn't in Jesus' moral commands or teachings. The basis of our peace isn't in Jesus showing up and giving us another theological or ethical lecture. It's not as if we get peace by on the basis of how much we remember or can are able to do the commandments that he's given us. Jesus didn't show up and say to us, "Cheer to his disciples, here's how you become better people. Remember what I told you." Here's a few more parables. Here's how you could outshine the Pharisees. Here's how you become more patient. In other words, the basis of our peace isn't even Jesus telling us, here are the 10 steps of gaining peace. He simply shows up beckoning the disciples, beckoning us to look upon his resurrected body, which means what? The basis of our peace is an event. The basis of our peace is a person. The basis of our peace is in Christ's resurrection body. Friends, this is what makes Christianity utterly unique. Christianity doesn't tell you that peace is available to you. If only you would obey God harder. If only you would be able to love your neighbor as yourselves harder. If you were able to simply just obey God with your whole heart. Christianity doesn't tell you peace is available to you once you've committed yourself to a 10-step program to, to, to bettering yourself and so that now you can have peace rather Christianity tells you that peace has come into your life Precisely because Christ is resurrected this has happened and if the gospel if the good news Is based on an event it's news in other words is something that happened It's not first and foremost a command It's not first and foremost a command. It's good news. It's something that you ought to ponder. It's something that happened. It's something that you simply are a passive observer and you look up and you see something was done in your behalf. And something that ought to make you glad. Look up and see the resurrection. So how does the resurrection body specifically become the basis of our peace and not ethical commands? Well, the resurrection, friends, tells us that Jesus had overcome death. Jesus had overcome death. Why were, the, why were the Jews fearful at this point? They were fearful, as we saw in verse 19, because of fear of the Jews. Why were they fearful of the Jews? Precisely because the Jews, they thought, had the power over their lives. If their leader was killed, it made sense for them to think, well, the Jews were going to come after us. In other words, our lives are at stake. We might die. We might fall to them as well. If our leader had fallen, then so might we. But if Christ was resurrected, that means there was someone who overcame death. That means that something other than death is the end of your life. In other words, you can go through death and still have eternal life. Someone else died and you could see that someone else died and therefore had been there and came out the other side and came to you and said, peace be with you, I have overcome death. So Jesus' resurrection body tells us that we, too, can overcome death. You know, I, uh, some of you are still in school here today, right? I mean, a lot of us get anxious when we're graduating from high school, when we're graduating from college, right? What's life going to be like after this? What's life going to be like after this? Am I going to get out of school and, and is life going to be all better? How, how am I, I going to pass my college applications? How am I going to pass uh, uh, all of these things that I need to go through to get through college or... or after college to get the job, right? And most good schools, right, they, they prepare these seminars where they invite graduates, where they invite um, um, those who've been there before. In other words, if you're a high schooler and you're anxious about college, they invite someone who's in college or someone that just passed through college, graduated, to come and speak to you and say, look, I've been there. I know IB looks like it's going to be a lot of work, but don't worry. I've been through it. I've been through it. You can do this. Or if you're college, someone comes in through a job center and says, look, I've been there, I've been through the job process, you can do this. Be encouraged. Or if you're trying to get married like I am, right? We get anxious a lot. What's going hap- to hap- happen after we get married? What, how's life going to be any different? How do I know that things are going to be okay? How do we get through all the marital difficulties? And we benefit a lot from having talked with people who have been married, who are older than us, who are in a different stage of life, who could tell us again and again, Here's what you might expect, and here's how you might overcome them, and we've been there. Now multiply that by a hundredfold. Friends, death is coming. You know, you might do all that you could try to do to distract yourself from the thought that death is coming, but death is coming. and. The litmus test of your worldview, the litmus test of your philosophy, the litmus test of your functional habits and patterns of life is this. How do you deal with the inevitability of death? How do you deal with the inevitability of death? Do you try to distract yourself away from it? Do you try to just not think about it? You know, before I was a Christian, I was constantly, obviously, hanging out with my, my ex-non-Christian friends, right? And I was simply trying to... I was, I was wrestling through these questions, and I remember they were, they were constantly asking me, why are you thinking so hard? You know, I have sleeping problems since I was like 15 or 16. So I remember I would, I would come back on a Friday night and I would tell people, you know, I, I couldn't sleep, I should, probably should go home earlier, because I'm thinking about these questions. I'm thinking about these questions. What happens after we die? Is this it? Is this life all there is to life? You know, if, if you die, how do you know that your life is meaningful? Once you die, memories of you fade away, people who remember you fade away, you just become dust again. Why do we even live? Why bother trying, in other words? I was trying to think out the logical implications of my own atheism, and I remember my friends back then told me Great, just calm down. Don't think too hard about it. Just live your life now, just be happy now. Just don't worry about it. Just keep going out on the weekends. Don't don't worry about it, don't think about it. And I'm thinking back about those experiences and my conversations with them now, I thought to myself, what kind of worldview tells you that to get over your fear of death, you need to just stop thinking? In other words, be dumber. Don't think out the implications of your worldview. Yes, God doesn't exist, so don't think about it. I know it's depressing, don't think about it. You see, Christianity is sometimes caricatured as the faith that tells you that it's irrational, that it's believing something contrary to science or reason or logic, but rather now, simply face the facts. If God doesn't exist and death is coming, oh yes, it's coming to us all, we're not going to die in peace. Because we know deep inside that if God doesn't exist, our lives mean absolutely nothing. And we need to confront that fact. But friends, if the resurrection is true, then death is not the end. If the resurrection is true, that means all of your instincts, all of your intuitions, all of your habits, all of those things that tell you deep inside that death isn't supposed to be that you were meant to live forever, that you were supposed to enjoy love and relationships with all those that you love here on earth forever. Those instincts didn't come from nowhere. That means you know deep inside your heart that you were created for eternity. As Romans 1 tells you, as Ecclesiastes 3 tells you, God has put a hole in your heart. God has put eternity in your heart. And you know deep inside that death is an intrusion to an otherwise good and eternal creation. And we were the ones who have mucked it up. So think through the logical implications of your faith. But if you are a Christian and you're fearful of death like the disciples were, don't dumb yourselves away from the implications of your worldview. Instead, think it out more. Think it out more. When anxiety comes, when fear comes, when you're crippled and paralyzed by by these anxieties and fears, think out the implications of your faith. Friends, someone else was already resurrected. Someone else is already with the Father. Someone else has shown you by the historical evidence, by his person, by the declaration of his body to his disciples, by eyewitness accounts, someone else has overcame death on your behalf, and therefore you have a firm and certain hope that you will not die forever. Christ has resurrected, so have hope. Take hope. He has taken up a body that will be your body. His resurrection guarantees our resurrection, but more than that, friends, his resurrection body is the basis of our peace precisely because it also shows us that it's overcome sin. If Christ has resurrected, that means his sacrifice for you, for me, was accepted by God. See, God is a just and faithful God. He will not condemn a righteous person. Christ lived the perfect and obedient life for you and in your behalf. If Christ had stayed dead, God would be unjust because a righteous person can't stay dead. A perfect person has to be resurrected. And if Christ had been resurrected, that means he really did complete everything that he was supposed to complete. He is the second Adam, he's your representative. The first Adam fell as our representative, and so we fell with him. The second Adam, Christ, was perfect and righteous when the first Adam had failed. And he was your substitute, he is your new representative head. And if he resurrected, that means you know that this second Adam not only took on your punishment, but was also righteous on your behalf. He lived the perfect and obedient life when you could not have. And he resurrected. You know what that means? It means that it's finished. All the sins that are weighing down in your conscience. See the marks of those sins on his body. The scars that he continues to bear for you. All the things that you know still haunt your past. Look upon the resurrected body and see the marks of those punishments borne on him. All the things that you're afraid of in the future that you might do. You might think to yourself, I think I'm a good person. I don't know. I don't know if I'll be able to make it. Look upon his resurrected body and see. All of your future sins have been paid for. Look upon his scars, his head, his hands, his feet, his pierced side. This is the one righteous for your behalf. In other words, the resurrection not only shows us that someone else has overcome death for you, but someone else had become righteous for you. You will overcome death, and sin had been defeated. You have been utterly forgiven of your sins. But only that, more importantly, look at the next verse. Jesus reiterates again, verse 21, Peace be with you. What's another basis of our peace? As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he has said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a significant passage. In other words, another basis of our peace is not simply Christ's resurrection body that shows us that he has defeated death, He's defeated sin, But it's also the fact that because he's resurrected, he's no longer limited by space or time to be with you forever. Christ doesn't have to be physically there with you for him to be with you because now you have his Holy Spirit. You have his Holy Spirit and it's it's significant. Look at verse uh, 22, that he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, right? We saw in our call to worship the first time God did this. The first time God breathed on a particular human human being was Adam. He breathed on Adam the breath of life so that Adam had become a life-giving being. But Adam had ruined that and has taken all of creation with him. But now what Christ is saying is, here's a new creation. And this new creation isn't just an end in itself. It's not as if, We're just going to be resurrected and the resurrection body is an end in itself. We're going to get a new body that will never die. No, our resurrection body is precisely so that we will be free from sin. And because we're free from sin, we can have God not just dwelling with us, but in us. That the Holy Spirit could be present with us. God could dwell now with sinners. You would never be alone again. The deepest longings of your heart is not simply for the forgiveness of sins, not simply for the resurrection of the body but also for you to be in union with god himself to receive the holy spirit and if the first humanity was turned into dust the second humanity will be living by the holy spirit of god you will have god forever that's the longing of the human heart that's the longing of the human heart so what's the basis of our peace christ's resurrection body and our communion with the Holy Spirit forever. God is free to dwell with us forever. And friends, that's your deepest need. Let me just emphasize that. That's your deepest longings. That's your deepest real need. That might not be the need that you think you have. It might not be your felt need. But it's your deepest, deepest need. Let me just get practical here, really concrete here for a moment, right? What's anxiety? Anxiety or fear one root of it anyway, maybe I think the main root, anxiety or fear is caused by you thinking that your main or deepest needs will never be met. Why are you anxious? You're, 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 you're anxious because your deepest longing and needs you might think will never be met. Why are you anxious that you're not yet married? Because you might be thinking to yourself, that's my deepest longing, I need to be married, or else I don't, I, don't, I don't know about my future, I don't know about my life. And some people, that's how they reassure themselves, right? I've met a lot of academics, for example, they've got bad book reviews from one of their published books, and then they say, well, I comfort myself by saying that you know, my first book was a, was a bestseller. But what if your first book wasn't a bestseller? What if that crumbled? Or some, some other people will say, well, I know my books haven't been selling well, but my family, at least that's pretty good, so I could be okay, I could have a in other words, even though my career isn't going well, I have a good family. As long as I got that going, as long as my deepest needs have been felt, as long as my deepest needs have been met, I can go on, and even though I have a failed career, I could still have peace. Other people are the other way around. Even though my family's breaking apart, at least I have my career. In other words, you are most anxious when you think your deepest needs have not yet been met. They haven't been met. But do you know that your deepest need is that you would live forever and that you'd be with God and your sins forgiven? Did you know that that's your deepest ever need? That there's nothing more urgent than that? You know, there's a story in Mark 2, for example, where Jesus comes across a paralytic and the paralytic brings, uh, I mean, sorry, a bunch of friends bring this paralytic to Christ. All right? And Jesus sees the paralytic man and you would think, what is the paralytic's deepest need that, that Jesus should fix and meet right now? What were the friends thinking? His paralytic heal the man, restore to him his legs, cause his spine to regrow, make sure that he could walk again. You know what Jesus did? He looked upon the paralytic and he said, Your sins would be forgiven. Your sins would be forgiven. The audacity of Jesus to, to look at this paralytic and to completely bypass the fact that this man could not walk for his entire life and to simply look at him and say, your deepest need, my friend, is not that you would walk again and then live a little longer. Your deepest need, my friend, is that you would be forgiven and that you could be with God. And if you have thought otherwise, you have thought wrongly about your deepest need. And perhaps, friends, perhaps, you have came into church every week you've read your bibles you've 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 came to community groups all this time and you've been utterly bored uncaptivated you are not at all interested in this church community or in the the preaching of the bible you're not interested in anything of the gospel at all perhaps because you have thought to yourself that your deepest need isn't that you're a sinner in other words, you functionally behave as if you're not a sinner in need of grace. So you come in week in and week out and you think to yourself, my greatest need is that I need physical healing, which isn't bad to pray for, but you thought that this was your deepest need. You came in week in your heart and you're not healed, and you become bitter. We become bitter. And then you come away thinking, well, God hasn't met my deepest needs, so forget that. God doesn't exist, or he isn't good. Forget the church. Forget the Bible. I'm not interested anymore. Or you came in week in and week out, and you thought that your deepest need is your career restored, and you're anxious. You can't have peace. You can't have peace. You can't have peace. And then you have the audacity, as I've heard some people say, what good is the cross and the resurrection if I can't get a new job? What good is the cross and resurrection if, if I can't get a new job? And Tim Keller talks about you know, one of my favorite analogies by Tim Keller is that you know in his early ministry years, he had a 16-year-old girl come up to him after one of his sermons, and she, he could tell that she was pretty distraught and distressed. And being a teenager, she didn't yet know the customs of church lingo, so she came up to him and said, "You know, I'm really, really anxious. I'm really, really, uh, you know, I'm, I just can't have peace in my life." you know, I, I'm not popular in school, and I just don't know what to do with my life. And then Keller used to tell her, hey, let's think about the cross a little bit more. You know, your sins have been forgiven. And then she had the audacity to say, you know, what good is Jesus' forgiveness if I can't be popular? Now, you might think to yourself, okay, that's a teenager. That's your, that, that doesn't apply to me. But could it be that you've came to church with a felt need and not a real need and you've came to church every week and you've expected God to meet something else other than your sins and and death. And therefore, because he hasn't met that need, you've been questioning, what good is all this for? What good is all this for? But friends, your deepest need had been met. How do you know that God's been good to you? How do you know that God's been gracious to you? How do you know that you could have peace? Because take heart, O Christian, Your deepest needs have been completely met and satisfied by God. How do you know that God is good to you? God no longer considers you a sinner. You've been forgiven. God will be with you forever. And suddenly when you take a look at that, when you take a look at the resurrection of Christ and you see to yourself that here's my righteousness. I'm free from my sin. Here's my God. I get to be with him forever. Suddenly you can take a look at your career, your families, and you can look at all the losses that you have in your life, which will come. All the things that you used to cling on to, and you could say to yourselves, these things matter little to me now. I can look upon the resurrection body, and I could say, be glad, oh my soul, it is well with me now. That's the basis of your peace. Look upon the resurrection body. Look upon his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Know that the spirit has made you new, and therefore you could dwell with him forever. Don't. Think that your deepest need has not yet been met, they have. Friends, this is an amazing message of forgiveness. It's an amazing message that God has met your deepest need. So let's go to our third and final point, the urgency of our peace. The urgency of our peace. Look at the last verse, which is a bit perplexing to some of us, perhaps, because of the strength of it, the the power of it, the 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 starkness of it. Verse twenty three if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. But if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This sounds a little bit scary for some of us perhaps because it almost seems like Jesus is saying to all Christians everywhere that you now have the authority and the power to forgive sins. And it's not exactly right. Remember, he's speaking here to the ten apostles, to his ten original disciples who will, as you're going to read in the book of Acts, uh, forgive sins will have miraculous powers uh, gifted to them in some cases. So the apostles did have a unique function in the early church to somehow be forgiving sins and, and withhold forgiveness to some. Remember, they, they, they communicated judgment to Annas and Sapphira in, in Acts chapter 5. They, they communicated forgiveness to many and made others glad by healing and so forth. So the apostles had a unique Authority role to be able to forgive sins, to be able to communicate forgiveness, but not us. So let's that be clear. But at the same time, it does communicate that we Christians who have received the message of forgiveness from the apostles who were given this authority do have a certain kind of urgency. Even though Christians don't have the ultimate authority like the apostles do to forgive or to withhold forgiveness, Christians do have the responsibility and the urgency to communicate this forgiveness to others, to be able to herald the message of this good news that humanity's deepest needs have been met. In other words, we have the gospel entrusted to us to become ambassadors of reconciliation, and we're supposed to go out into the world and to communicate this gospel in that a real sense, friends, In a real sense, if the church is not proclaiming the gospel, you are actually withholding forgiveness from those who need it most. From those who need it most. If you know the urgency of this message, if you know that our deepest needs is forgiveness, and if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, don't you see that you're most loving towards them when you communicate them to them boldly, urgently, that they need their sins forgiven and that someone else had paid for their sins. Members of Covenant City Church, are you fearful of this culture? Are you shy? Are you afraid of, your, of how people might perceive you if you're bold about the gospel? Are you embarrassed of it? Are you afraid that your relationships might be threatened because of the gospel? Well, here now, if you love these people, know that this is the message that you ought to dedicate your lives to because they need to hear this. So members of Conan City Church, reach out. But if you're a visitor here and you're still not sure about Christianity, you're not yet a Christian, friends, reach in. Christ is here and he's presenting to you his resurrected body. Live in him. Where are you going to be on the last day? How are you going to overcome death? Reach in. And know that He's paid for your sins. Why would you let go of this forgiveness if it's freely offered to you? He is your hope. He's your peace. Reach in. Do whatever you can to learn more about this gospel. So, members, reach out. Visitors, reach in. And, church, as a church, I hope you know this as a criterion of the church. The mission of the church that's established here with the urgency of this message in verse 23 is simply stated as the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. The church is not here for a self-help, self-improvement program. The church is not here simply for social justice or social mercy. The church is here primarily, first and foremost, to proclaim the forgiveness of sins because if we don't do that, we have missed humanity's deepest need. We ought to continue to do so. Let us pray. Father, it is an incredible thing that you have declared forgiveness unto us. That though we have come here with specific felt needs into our hearts, weighing down deeply into our hearts, Lord God, we know that we've got to make a shift from seeing that our real need is sin. And so we're not just coming to church for our felt needs, Lord God, but we're coming to church astonished that we sinners could even be heard by you at all. And that you would become our Father. What amazing news this is. Let this captivate our hearts. And let us see the urgency of this good news. That we might proclaim it in boldness and power. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.